Let's imagine three very different people are worshiping with New City Baptist Church today. And I've given these people names straight out of the Mr. Men series by Roger Hargreave. Remember that? Uh, Little Miss Chatterbox and Mr. Messy. And uh, the first person I'm going to call Miss Irresponsible Carefree. Miss Irresponsible Carefree rarely gets anything done. And what she does manage to accomplish is never on time. It's difficult to get her to work faithfully at any task. She's happy-go-lucky. She's a free spirit. She doesn't worry about the next five minutes, let alone worry about tomorrow. Frankly, the woman is downright irresponsible. Life is a lark for Miss Irresponsible Carefree. The second person is Mr. Hyper-responsible. Mr. Hyper-responsible takes every grief and burden seriously. He frets so much that his ulcers have ulcers. The state of the economy is a constant weight on Mr. Hyper-responsible's mind. Rising interest rates, inflation, looming recession, the war in Ukraine. Not only does he worry about tomorrow... He frets about how he'll make out when he retires 35 years down the road. He frets about it. And every bit of bad news, or even a whiff of potentially bad news, prompts a new outbreak of anxiety and fresh ulcers. The third person is Mr. Balanced. Do you you see what I did there? Miss Irresponsible Carefree, Mr. Hyper-Responsible. Now we have Mr. Balanced. Mr. Balanced is known in the church for his integrity and disciplined hard work. He's married with two children, but Mr. Balanced's wife has just been diagnosed with brain cancer. And the prognosis is not good. She'll be dead in three years, during which time she'll become more and more vegetative. And all three are gathered with us today to hear a sermon preached from Luke chapter 12. A sermon entitled, as you see in your bulletins, Don't Worry, Christian. Instead, trust God and seek his kingdom. And over the course of the next 45 minutes, I say things like this. I say, worry is not to be characteristic of the Christian because it's the result of a faulty view of God. Worry and anxiety involves distrust in God, and that must not be. How are those three people likely to react to such a message? Welcome to my world, folks. (laughs) Well, Miss Irresponsible Carefree, she feels great. My sermon doesn't bother her one bit. It's like water off a duck's back. She's thinking all throughout... Preach it, Pastor John. Other people at New City are way too uptight. Why bother studying hard to get an A? Just passing the course is good enough. Why get so hung up on binding commitments? I'm happy and free and cheerfully obeying the Lord's command not to worry. Tra-la-la, (laughs) tra-la-la. On the other hand, Mr. Hyper-Responsible, he feels rebuked by my sermon. He knows I'm preaching to him, at him. And he worries. He's been denying the Lord. And and so he despairs of himself and his sins. Mr. Hyper-Responsible begins to worry 
about worry. He sees this as being an impossible standard, and by the end of the sermon, he is freaking out. Meanwhile, Mr. Balanced is furious. He's sneering under his breath. Yeah, right, John. Maybe you ought to watch your own wife die of cancer before presuming to teach, to preach a text like this, or presume to tell me that I have a faulty view of God. You're an ignorant man. And those three people represent only a small number of possible reactions to this text. I wonder how each of us will respond to this passage this morning. I've had all week to grapple with it, and it wasn't easy, I can tell you. It's a convicting text. But you're going to get both barrels at once as you sit there. I can't address all occasion for worry in the Christian's life in my sermon today. Or even how it's best to respond to these three people that I just mentioned. Uh, Because each one needs to be addressed differently from God's word. We all need balance to weld the diverse biblical teachings about worry together, but also precision so that we're not drawing out inferences beyond what Luke chapter 12 allows. In the interest of precision, Jesus' teaching on worry or anxiety in Luke 12 is very specific. He isn't covering all the bases of life's worries. Our Lord is focused on one thing, material necessities are not a valid cause of anxious worry for Christians. Material necessities are not a valid cause for anxious worry for Christians, which means our physical needs, however legitimate they may be, clothing, food, shelter, must never displace our prior ultimate commitment to the kingdom of God. In other words, instead of being worried about the material necessities of life, Christian, seek God's kingdom. Be anxious for that. Worry is not to be characteristic of the believer because it's the result of a faulty view of God. There, I said it. Worry is not to be characteristic of the believer because it's the result of a faulty view of God. Instead, we're living in such a way as to store up treasures in heaven, not here on earth, in anticipation of Jesus' glorious return. Beloved, if the kingdom of God comes first in our life, then those other things, clothes, food, shelter, that's all going to be given to us by our Heavenly Father. We can depend upon it. He's promised it. He's promised. And if that's truly the case, if we believe God will indeed provide for our basic material necessities and if we can live a life of joyful contentment in humble conditions as we generously give our wealth away because Jesus is our greatest treasure on this earth, then this becomes a great opportunity for us to live lives distinct from this unbelieving world. The world is scrambling after all those things, but not us. 
because we've learned to trust in God and seek his kingdom instead. Look with me in your bulletin at our first point. Point number one, Christian, put your trust in the sovereign goodness of God. That's a very important point. Not just the sovereign omnipotent power, but the sovereign goodness of God. And do not worry about material necessities. God has pledged to care for his own. Now, when we come to these verses in Luke, uh, Jesus' parable of the rich fool should still be ringing in our ears. In that parable, we read of a rich farmer who is blessed by God with an abundant harvest, so much so that he has no place to store his new wealth. What's he to do? It's a quandary. He decides to tear down his old barns and build bigger barns to accommodate the surplus, which he does, whereupon he commences to live a life of selfish indulgence with God's money. He hoards his wealth. He is not rich towards God. He is selfish in the use of his wealth that the Lord has entrusted to his care. In that parable, the farmer's wealth becomes disproportionately important. His earthly possessions become an idol which displaces, which deposes God. And so the Lord comes to him in judgment. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then Jesus says in verse 21, This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Christian, it's not a bad thing when our land yields an abundant harvest, verse 16. It's not bad when our business prospers. It's not bad to receive a promotion and with it a pay increase and a nice bonus. It's not bad when our investments increase in value. Uh, This man is not called a fool by God because he's a productive farmer. That's not the issue. When the parable begins, the farmer's actions are being portrayed in a neutral light, aren't they? Uh, He came by his wealth honestly. He's not some corrupt tax collector. But something happens, something sinful happens between verses 17 and 20. And he becomes a fool who loses his eternal soul. What is it? I mean, we don't want to make the same terrible mistake, do we? So what happened? What did this guy do? This man is a fool who loses his soul because of the way he used the increase of his riches. He gave no indication of being rich toward God. He just kept building bigger barns. And that policy might be okay if... He was storing the grain for a use that showed God was his supreme treasure. But what does this greedy farmer say to himself? Verse 19, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. The use he plans to make of his wealth says one thing. My treasure is relaxing. My treasure is eating and drinking well. My treasure is fun. That's my life. And the riches 
stored up in my barns makes it possible. The concluding verse, verse 21, makes the point so clearly. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be rich toward God? I think it's very plain from the contrast. It's the opposite, the opposite of laying up earthly treasure for ourselves. Being rich toward God is the opposite of treating the self as though it were made for things and not for God. Being rich toward God is the opposite of acting as if life consists in the abundance of possessions, not in the abundance of knowing God. Being rich toward God is our heart being drawn toward God as our riches. Rich toward God means counting God greater than riches, greater than anything on earth. Rich toward God means using earthly riches to show how much we value God. And this is what the prosperous farmer failed to do, and the result is he loses his soul. Christian, right now, as you sit in your seat, I want you to think of all the unabashedly good things Jesus says about wealth and the abundance of possessions. Just just list them off in your mind right now. Can you think of even one? It's warning after warning after warning, isn't it? Do you think Jesus knows what he's talking about? Or is he just scaremongering? Is Jesus an ascetic killjoy? Money and possessions can lure us away from love for God. It can lure us away from treasuring God as our supreme treasure. Which makes the parable of the rich fool a divine wake-up call to every person who has ever earned a dollar. Earthly riches are transient. They're temporary. They're fleeting. And there's a coming reckoning where we all will have to face God to give an account for how we've used every penny of his money which he's entrusted into our managing care. Purely selfish accumulation of possessions is incompatible with true Christian discipleship. That's the context for our passage today. Jesus has been minimizing the ultimate significance of material possessions. But as we move from the parable of the rich fool... We might naturally ask now, as we're reading the text, okay, well, what, a, what about the necessities of life? Um, this greeter, greedy farmer, he was already rich when the parable began, and then he selfishly hoarded more. So, yes, he should have given more of his money away. He should have been rich toward God. He can well afford it. But it's one thing to turn your back on money when you're already rich. What about when you're poor? I have a wife and 14 children to feed. I can barely provide them with food and clothing and shelter. Things are tight. Prices are sky high. Inflation, recession, Toronto real estate insanity. So what's Jesus saying to me? Well, he he may be saying something about the wonders of contraception, friend. (laughs) 
14 kids is a lot of mouths to feed. Uh, But he's certainly telling you this. Just as earthly material possessions can become an idol, which overthrow and depose God by becoming disproportionately uh, important, so also earthly material needs can become a source of worry, which depose God by fostering distrust. It's so easy for our our loyalty to God and seeking first his kingdom to get lost in the faithless, fearful scramble for the material essentials. Hear that again, New City. Earthly material needs can become a source of worry which depose God by fostering distrust. And this section begins with Jesus stating the general principle of the passage, verse 22. Then Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. That's the divine exhortation. That's Jesus' command. Don't worry about material necessities, Christian, what you will eat, what you will wear. And then our Lord gives the reason, verse 23, life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Our anxiety over food and clothing is rooted in a fatal illusion, the illusion that human human needs are only physical. Jesus is warning us about confusing subordinate ends with ultimate ends. That sounds complex, so let me explain that. I've used this illustration in the past, but I think it's helpful. I might point to a car and say that car was built for someone to sit in it. And since there are doors on each side of the vehicle and there are seats inside the car, no one could deny that part of the purpose of a car is for you to get inside it and sit down, right? But that's not the ultimate purpose of a car. The ultimate purpose of a car is to transport people from place to place to place. Sitting down in the car is just a subordinate end. Sitting down in a car is just one of the means by which transportation ultimately comes about. You have to sit in the car first. Jesus says the same thing with food and clothing. Both are subordinate ends. They serve a higher purpose. Any person in possession of food and warm clothing is able to sustain their physical life. That's what's what's required, right? They're not going to die. And for the Christian, physical life is sustained in order that the ultimate end of glorifying God by seeking his kingdom can take place. Food and clothing is in furtherance of that. Do you see? This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 31. Seek his kingdom, and these things, life's basics, will be given to you as well. And so if we can be content with our daily bread, as we prayed today that we would be, and the clothes God provides, and not anxiously worry that God won't provide, And if we're not scrambling after more and more wealth because earthly treasure is our true treasure, if we're not hoarding wealth selfishly, if we're not finding our security and our comfort and reputation in the stuff we possess, or storing it up for the uncertain future as a means of insulating us from life's calamities, 
But if, rather, we're trusting in God, then, brothers and sisters, we're set. We're set. Now we can get down to the undistracted, worry-free business of seeking God's kingdom. Total commitment. God promises to cover the basics so we can burn some bridges, right? We can't lose if we're willing to trust God and if we're willing to give our money away for the furtherance of his kingdom. Because as I'm going to explain in a minute, rich Canadians like all of us We need to work backwards. We already have the money. And then we give it away, trusting God to provide for our needs. Verse 22. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. And then Jesus drives the lesson home with a couple of examples of how God provides, how comprehensive his care is. The first concerns food. Have have you been to the grocery store lately? The prices are much higher than they were last year, right? So this is apropos. This is timely stuff. Verse 24. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. Birds have no place to store vast quantities of food, yet God feeds them all. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, faithless worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? If we can't even do a small thing, like add a little extra time to our own lifespan then why worry about these other matters that are totally out of our control? If our Heavenly Father feeds birds and gives them life, won't he feed us? Especially because we're so much more valuable. Birds aren't created in God's image. Jesus didn't die for birds. The Holy Spirit doesn't indwell birds. Birds won't reign with Jesus for eternity. Armando, How would you respond if David raided the kitchen cupboards every night to secretly store provisions under his bed? Daddy, I can't depend on you. One day the food might not be there because you're a bad father. So I'm creating a stockpile under my bed. Beloved, what a morally outrageous affront to God it is to be constantly worrying about how our future meals will be provided for. The food will be there. Our Heavenly Father will provide. Why is this truth so hard for us to accept? If we believe that God can create us, redeem us, and bring us through death to spend eternity with him, if he's given us his son, why can't we take him at his word when he says he'll provide for our... It's shameful. It's shameful. Or, maybe, maybe, we do trust God to provide for our basic needs. But who wants to be satisfied with merely that? 
What are we? But, you know, are we a bunch of underachievers? We're Canadians, thank you very much. We're a people who would be scandalized with just the necessities, the basics that sustain physical life. That's a recipe for misery. We naturally expect so much more. And so we leave the encouragement and the command of this text for economically destitute Christians living in places like Africa and South America. And we get on with our materialistic scramble, pushing the priorities of the kingdom to the side. Maybe that's closer to the truth. This is a difficult text for Canadians to relate to because we're so wealthy. We take comfort for granted, don't we? Uh, We expect it, and we pursue comfort with abandon. We build bigger barns of selfish indulgence and call it God blessing us. That's how warped our perspective could be. We've gotten used to trusting in our money to provide for our needs and not trusting in God. So, of course, we hoard it. It's not only the stuff of life, it keeps the wolf from war. It's life's great security and hope. Can you relate to that? Money is life's great security and hope. And so we stockpile our money and insulate ourselves from God. What? Depend upon God's gracious provision and protection? Rely on his goodness, his sovereign goodness? Frankly, we find the whole idea repulsive. Carson notes this, many Christians in the West would think it very hard indeed if they had to live at a subsistence level, for they have long since come to take as necessities things which others would assess as luxuries. God, in his lavish mercy, often gives much more than the essentials, but here he pledges himself only to the latter, which is why fellow rich Canadians, we need to work backwards. We must give our vast wealth away, trusting that God will provide for our basic necessities. Being rich toward God, not building bigger barns of selfish indulgence, and giving our money away in sacrificial, committed generosity. That will our heart in its proper God-dependent place. Allowing the safety net in life to be God's sovereign goodness and his promise to meet our needs, not our stockpile of investments. But are we willing to give our wealth away? Do we trust God to provide? That's the question. This is the surgical scalpel that gets the idolatrous rot buried deep in our hearts, loved ones. The second example of God's gracious provision is clothing. Verse 27, consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God 
clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. How much more will he clothe you? You of little faith. Do you see how Jesus argues from the lesser example to the greater? If this is how God clothes grass, which is destined to be mown down and burned, then we can know he's going to be a whole lot more concerned to clothe us, his adopted children. It's the same argument as the ravens, isn't it? The birds. And, and what this means, of course, is if God calls on us today to share our resources with another person, we mustn't say, I can't, Lord, because I don't know where my provisions are coming from. Yes, we do know where they're coming from. They're coming from God's sovereign good hand. If God has control over everything and God takes care of his children, and God gives everything necessary to those who seek his kingdom, and if you're his child, and you are seeking his kingdom, then don't worry. Be generous. You can sacrificially and consistently give to your local church. You can give to the poor. Verse 32, do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And something else which anticipates my fourth point. Uh, This isn't just a matter of not worrying because we know that God's going to provide food and clothing. So, you know, I can never starve to death. God has has pledged to take care of me. All right. No, this is this is divine comfort. It's a divine promise, which is supposed to lead them to action. It's it's not just psychological ease. I never have to worry. It leads to action. This is supposed to lead us, brothers and sisters, to holy risk. Prudent, faithful, financial risk in the sense of being rich towards God. It leads to prioritizing the kingdom, not zen-like calm. It leads to our laying up treasure in heaven, not on earth. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But more on that in a bit. So point number one, Christian, put your trust in the sovereign goodness of God. And do not worry about material necessities God has pledged to care for his own. Point number two, these same needs then become opportunities for living a life distinctive from the unbelieving world who never learned to trust God for basic necessities. This point is short. It's just two verses long, but it's absolutely essential. Verse 29, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. I'm sure most of us have seen the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. And unless the owner is an ironic hipster, then you've never seen that sticker plastered on the rusting bumper of a 93 Ford Taurus, have you? It's always on something nice, like a, like a cigarette boat. 
now, I know no one here would be so crass as to express that sentiment out loud. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's disgusting. Uh, and we'd be loath to admit to ourselves that we, the good Christian disciples that we are, could believe such a godless thing. And yet, I wonder how much real difference there is in practice between how the unbelieving world relates to their wealth and how Canadian Christians relate to their wealth, our wealth. What's the real difference, I wonder, between our bank statements as disciples of Jesus Christ, New City, our headlong pursuit for more, bigger, newer, faster possessions and thus greater status, our retirement plans, our pursuit for comfort, our credit card debt, our fears about the economy, our financial prioritizations in life as we save up for a down payment on a condo or a house or vacations or a kitchen renovation or a wedding or a car or our kids' schooling or daycare and our atheistic neighbor. I want like in dollars and cents. In theory, wouldn't you agree the difference ought to be profound? After all, we're a people who believe in the God of the Bible, the God who gave us his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice for our sins, the God who has promised, promised to provide for all the basic needs of his people, the God who is the believer's ultimate treasure in this world. The difference ought to be profound. Is it? If it's not, then that's a warning sign that something is wrong. Our biblical worldview is short-sighted. And that's not just rhetoric, folks. That's, that's literally the case. Our biblical worldview is short-sighted. God help us. A lack of uncompromising trust to provide that God will provide for our basic needs, coupled with our unwillingness to part with our money in faithful generosity, and a discontent for only the basics of life, bordering on revulsion. There's a satanic disconnect somewhere between our heart, our money, and our God. C.S. Lewis expresses this in a helpful way. It's a good diagnostic, I think. If our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch us or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Tim Challies writes, so many Christians can attest that there is a powerful, humbling kind of delight in tallying up the giving for a previous year and thanking the Lord for allowing so much to be given away. When you get your tax return, you see your charitable donations. Do you ever feel like that? A, a, a delight in thanking the Lord for allowing so much to be given away. That car or kitchen, or house, pales in comparison to the joy of making so small a sacrifice to the one who sacrificed all for us. 
Verse 29. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. In verse 30, Jesus provides two important reasons why Christians aren't to sound worried and frustrated like unbelievers about material necessities. The first reason is this. If we worry like pagans do about material necessities, then it's obvious we're pursuing the same things that they are. And if we're pursuing the same things they are, that means we're denying the values of the kingdom because the values of the God's kingdom are so different. Friend, let me ask, what what desires in this life characterize you? Did you know you can... We can pretty well much discover what our real treasures in life are, what our true priorities in life are, simply by studying our greatest desires. The things we treasure will govern our life. So what do we as Christians think about? What do we as Christians daydream about? As heirs of the kingdom of God, what have we set our heart on? Verse 29 radically different things than the unbelieving world? What are we characteristically and habitually drawn toward as Christians? Certainly not the same things the created order and rebellion against God is drawn toward. What do heirs of the eternal kingdom fret and worry about? Nothing. The object of our trust is God Almighty. Anxiety and worry are for people who have no God to provide for all their, all their basic and material needs. The citizens of God's kingdom adopt the perspectives of God's kingdom. We adopt the values of the kingdom of God, not the values of the unbelieving world. And so we live lives qualitatively different from those, of, those people who have no trust in God's fatherly care and no fundamental goals beyond material things. The second important reason why Christians aren't to be worried and frustrated and fretting like unbelievers about material necessities is this. Our Heavenly Father knows our needs, and our conduct is advertising loudly that we don't believe he will. Think of the the parent with their toddler who's learning to take their first steps. What does that parent do? Right? They hover behind their child with every tottering step. Their, their hands are outstretched, just ready to scoop up the kid in an instant if they start to fall. And everybody looking on, they know that the parent isn't really expecting great things of Junior. <laughs> they know the child isn't to be trusted. Uh, the child could fall and crack his skull any second. So that's why the parents are just ready to catch them. And, and to our shame, this is how we often treat God. God is a tottering baby, and, and, and we're going to trust entrust him with providing for our needs. We're going to trust him to the extent that we will give our money away in sacrificial amounts. We'll take holy risk in order to be rich toward God. No, thanks. Our Heavenly Father knows our needs, but by our conduct... By our worry, our hoarding, our revolting discontent with the humble basics of life, our finding security in money as a bulwark from future fear and want, 
our being just like the pagan world in regard to money in every respect all clearly shows that God's liable to fall over and crack his skull, and then we're on the streets and out of luck. Or, which I think is far more likely, living at a lower standard than the Joneses across the street who make the same income we do. I don't have any tattoos on my body. You don't put a bumper sticker on a Bentley, folks. right? <laughs> but... There is a spiritual tattoo stamped on my forehead I want the whole world to see. Made in the kingdom of God. And if you're a Christian, you have that tattoo on your forehead as well. Made in the kingdom of God. How are we standing out from the world, beloved? Apart from gathering with the church on Sunday morning, what makes our lifestyle distinct from the unbelieving world around us? The citizens of God's kingdom adopt the perspectives of the kingdom, a lifestyle that's characterized by the values and perspectives of Holy Scripture, a lifestyle that proclaims, I am seeking above all else, all else in life, the kingdom of God. And let me tell you one of the big ways Jesus wants us to demonstrate this we share the same absolute need for material necessities as every person living in this city. We all need food and water and clothing and shelter. So if we obey Jesus' teaching in Luke 12, if we trust him, then these shared needs become opportunities for living a life distinctive from the unbelieving world, a world that's never learned to trust God for basic necessities. But as I said before, we're Canadians. So we need to work backwards. We need to start by giving our wealth away in acts of committed generosity. That we might train ourselves against greed, yes. And I, I would put to you that the best way to train your heart against greed is to give your money away. So we're doing that, but also to demonstrate to the world our trust in God by not pursuing the same values as the world and building bigger and bigger barns of selfish indulgence. We take financial risk, brothers and sisters, not crazy, unwise speculation. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about taking out a second mortgage in your house and investing it all in Bitcoin, all right? I'm, I mean risk in the sense of trusting in God to provide for our needs, which in turn frees us to be generous with our money, to give it away to the church, to the poor, and so our lack of worry, our uncompromised trust in our Heavenly Father to provide, that will set us apart from the world and will, it will be a good witness to Jesus Christ. And what this looks like, we see in our next point, point three. Seek God's kingdom, which God has already given you, and all the necessities will be provided. Now, it's pretty plain to see that the main point of our passage today is that disciples of Jesus should not be anxious or worry about material necessities. Verse 22, then Jesus said to the disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Verse 25, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Verse 29, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry. But that's just the negative way of stating the main point of this passage. The positive formulation is found in verse 31. Seek his kingdom. 
and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, it's the title of our sermon. Don't worry, Christian. Instead, trust God and seek his kingdom. That's the crux of the whole matter. And this is the truth that Satan will be attacking with all his might as you sit there in your seat, as I stand up here and preach this. The devil wants this seed of biblical truth to fall on rocky soil and die. He wants this truth to have no effect whatsoever in the hearts of God's people because its obedient impact is tremendous. And that truth that the evil one hates so much is this. Because our Heavenly Father knows what we need, and because our Heavenly Father has promised to give us what we need, then our responsibility is to avoid consuming worry over material possessions and pursue instead the kingdom of God. In other words, as Jesus' disciples, when we're living in such a way as to differentiate ourselves from the unbelieving world with our big forehead tattoo made in the kingdom of God, we're not simply refraining from the headlong pursuit of earthly possessions as our ultimate goal. No, we're replacing that vain pursuit with goals of ultimate significance. Instead of seeking after money and possessions and earthly security, we're seeking the kingdom of God. And what does that mean, to seek after the kingdom of God? Look in your handout under point three. To seek the kingdom is the desire above all else. To enter into, submit to, and participate in spreading the good news of the saving reign of God, the messianic kingdom already inaugurated by Jesus, and to live as to store up treasure, treasures in heaven in the prospect of the kingdom's consummation. Kishan, brother, seek your heavenly father's kingdom first and never worry be assured that God will provide for you and your family all the needs for you and your family. Victoria, work hard. Be honest. But refuse to tie your life and happiness to earthly treasures that can be corrupted by moth and where people can come in and steal. Jill, proclaim with glad boldness what God has accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection to your co-workers at HSBC, tell your boss, bear witness to your crucified king. Go outside the camp and bear his disgrace. Armando, pray to the Lord for grace to see that seeking the kingdom of God is alone worthy of your wholehearted allegiance. Brian, for any other concern in your life to dominate your mind, apart from entering into submitting to and participating in and spreading the good news of the saving reign of Jesus is to stoop to pagan fretting. So guard your heart, brother. Chelms, don't be ambitious for yourself. Be ambitious for God. There is no third alternative. Jeremy, be assured 
that all the necessary things you require in this life will be given to you by your Heavenly Father. He demonstrates his faithfulness by his care even for the birds and his concern even for the grass. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear, and so assurance then follows. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It puts things in perspective, doesn't it? And so if this is indeed the case, if verse 32 is indeed the case, then with full assurance, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Don't worry. You can do that. The food will be there. Fear nothing. The clothing will be there. You don't need to hoard. Seek first the kingdom. The kingdom your father has been pleased to give you, so sell your possessions and give to the poor. Did you know that 1.5 billion people around the world live on less than $1 a day? More than 1 billion people do not have access to clean water. Every year, 6 million children die from malnutrition before their fifth birthday. More than 50% of Africans suffer from water-related diseases such as cholera and infant diarrhea. More than 800 million people go to bed hungry every day. 300 million are children. Of these 300 million children, only 8% are victims of famine or other emergency situations. More than 90% are suffering long-term malnutrition and micronutrition deficiency. A woman living in sub-Saharan Africa has a 1 in 16 chance of dying in pregnancy. That compares to a 1 in 3,700 risk for women living in North America. 1 to 16, 1 to 3,700. And when we selfishly hoard, it shows that we're unwilling to part with what we've saved to meet others' needs because our possible future needs, which God promises he will provide for, outweigh their actual present needs. We fail to love our neighbor as ourself. Disciples of Jesus must think clearly about these things. Verse 33b, provide purses, provide money bags for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. In other words, we need to have a perspective on wealth and possessions that's eternal. Right? That's what this means. Have an eternal perspective. Jesus is saying, put on your eschatological sunglasses. Let those lenses tint everything you're looking at. Randy Alcorn puts it this way. It's a poor bargain which exchanges the eternal for the temporal, regardless of how much tinsel is used to make the temporal more attractive. Folks, history is wrapping up. The dawn of Jesus' inaugurated kingdom has broken. It broke 2,000 years ago. Judgment Day is one week closer this Sunday than it was last when we'll be launched into eternity. C.T. Studd once said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Every heartbeat brings us closer to eternity. And every day, the person whose treasure is foolishly stored on earth is headed away from their treasure. But with every heartbeat, the person whose treasure is stored in heaven is headed toward their treasure. Where's your treasure? Are you headed toward it or away from it? New City, we must stop thinking of the Christian life and the benefits and responsibilities of being an adopted heir of the kingdom of God as basically beginning and ending with our fire insurance policy against God's wrath. A policy that we've cavalierly tucked into our pocket as we drift through life with a minimal amount of fuss and bother. A life where Jesus' command to pick up our cross and follow him in death has so little practical impact that it has no bearing on the treasures of this passing world and our idolatrous love for those treasures. If we're following Jesus faithfully, then there's going to be a consistent development of our deepest loves. What we once loved as our earthly treasure five years ago is, by God's grace, not so much our treasure now. And will be less five years hence. And by God's grace, through his enabling spirit, we're training ourselves to adopt an unswerving loyalty to the values of the kingdom of God. We're diligently, prayerfully training ourselves to delight in all that God approves. Colossians 3.1 Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in this text that I find my heart resisting and kicking against and wanting to affirm just, just as I preach it. But maybe I don't want to talk to my wife about certain things on the car ride home about our savings account. Lord, I pray for grace for all of us. Don't let us be fooled by money and possessions. Oftentimes our heart wants to be fooled. Give us grace to seek first your kingdom. Give us grace, Lord, to trust in you, to provide all those basic necessities, and give us grace to be content with basic necessities. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.